Hey, you're listening to Runelanders. If you're if you're a repeat listener, welcome back. And if you're just joining us, welcome aboard. I'm DM Runewise, otherwise known as Adam. I'm your host and friendly neighborhood dungeon master. I've been working on this world since 1981, and man, do I have stories to tell you. My friends help me with this, and speaking to them, I've got a bunch of the players to help me with these credits. So... We'll start with the player of Magma. Hi there, I'm Shauna, and I play the Sun Soul Monk known as Magma. We also have the player of the inestimable and inimitable Mr. Stitch. Those are bigger words than I can even say. Hi, I'm Corey. I play Mr. Stitch. Thirdly, the player of Narihulu, my friend, and a really terrible enemy to have. Hello, I'm Eric Martin. I play Narihulu, the crooked warlock lawyer. And last but far from least, the effervescent player of Zivahulu. Hello, I'm Shreen, also known as the Mad Fishmonger, and I play the... Okay, she's a necromancer wizard, Ziva Hulu, who, well, okay, she's a she's a she's a funerist. All right, they sort of. That's what it says on the papers, anyway. We didn't get any feedback from uh, email this week. We've been generating a bit of buzz on uh, social media, complaints that people have run out of episodes, that sort of thing. If you're listening, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. On Twitter, we're at Cast the Runes. You can drop us an email at runelanders at gmail.com or just find us. We're the Runelanders on Facebook. We're, avail- we're available for download on Apple and Google Podcasts, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Podchaser, well, pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts. Like I said, we'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line, rate us, review us, let us know how we can get better, and uh, we'll keep giving you the best show we know how. Now, last week, well, things were kind of jam-packed. Anybody want to jump in on this and share their favorite memory of Episode 8? I'd love to. Uh, So last episode, there was lots of action-packed as I as I've said once before, and we went about taking care of Thrasher's rat problem. Uh, one of my favorite moments uh, was Magma in the kitchen. I love the music in the background, uh, and I love the visual of her just basically trying to get these rats to settle down and have some borscht. Well, they were doing their level best to kill her. Yeah, that was, uh, that, that was a really good portrait of Magma as a character. Well played, by the way, Sean, I never did mention Wow, thank you kindly. It was, honestly, it was a lot of fun to play. What was your favorite moment of episode eight? You know, I, I gotta say the bolt caster ballet with, uh, with Nari Hulu and Arabet, it just, uh, like, I don't know, it, it almost reminded me of like a, a, strangely enough of like a Kung Fu movie, even though, you know, like there's, there's, bolts going back and forth between um you know between everybody 
whether it's, you know, the bolt caster from Arabet or Nari's, um, you know, Eldritch Blast. It was, yeah, it was kind of like this, you know, old West meets Kung Fu movie. It was super cool. It's a very John Woo. That's what I was going for. And the guys, uh, the guys really stepped up. I thought they did a really smashing job in that scene. It was not a bum scene in last episode at all. We don't have a lot of those, but uh, last episode I thought was particularly good. Anything stick out for you, Eric? Kind of enjoyed pushing a halfling down the stairs. <laughs> I think that was in episode seven, wasn't it? Oh, it might have been, yeah. Because we, uh, oh, we laid the trap, then we sprung the trap, and then we messed with the guys in the trap. So we, we yeah. took our time with those guys. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a well-executed plan. I love it when everything comes together like that. You are uh, you are a true mastermind after all, uh, Ziva. What was your favorite part of episode eight? I did kind of like. I think it was just kind of hearing it from the outside. But when we were doing the scene about you know when when Ziva and Nari had made the cage and they'd painted all the runes and everything, and you know I just imagined them doing it. As if it was just this completely normal do to do everyday thing to do, and then everyone else's reactions to the room were like, "Holy shit! <laughs> Going anywhere near that? That's fucking terrifying!" And she's just like, "What? What are you talking about?" Just a, well, I mean, you wouldn't notice. It wouldn't be like a smell that it built up while you were in the room, you know? Yeah, and I, I just, it, it, uh, I felt like it really cemented that kind of outsider person that she's always been, you know, where. Yeah, it certainly did establish her as uh, a different kind of a different kind of gal, right? Um, yeah, also did, did a bit to, uh, move the plot forward and, you know, I thought it was a well executed scene anyway. Very good. I did, uh, I did really like the way you described, um, the, the ritual and the way, you know, you, you just portrayed everything happening and, uh, and, and how you, um, how you faked us out, like how she faked us out pretending she was dead before. See, I've always felt in a fantasy setting that there's big M magic and little M magic. Most of the things you see people casting are little M magic spells. But anyway, I'm getting off topic. People want to hear this episode. So thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate the help. That's the recap, folks. I'm RuneWise. This is Rapscallions, so get ready, runatics, and let's roll. This episode opens with Nari and Ziva having just completed the exorcism of Willa Malone. As they leave the ritual chamber, Ziva heads off toward the restaurant above. 
Mary lingers long enough for Thrasher to warn him about Bailey Mina. Then Thrasher turns to Arabet and says, Arabet. Thrasher? I need you to stick around for a moment once you've seen your friends out. Of course. Come and see me in my office when you're ready. Nari, we ready? I think so. Off we, off we go. Let's get Ziva Kabajava as we go. And as the goblins take Willa off to the holding rooms downstairs, after Thrasher has cut her face with his thumb knife, just to make sure it doesn't heal up right away, she's bustled off in her morning dress to the bunk rooms, which are not as nice as this ritual room, which, let's face it, is still a little resonantly creepy. But. And some people call it creepy. So you get Ziva some coffee along the way. Ziva, you're sitting there with this big paper cup full of, you know, sweet espresso with cream. It's not how it's normally supposed to be uh, served, but, you know, why not? Go do what I style, want. Right? But it's like an extra large espresso with three creams and 15 sugars. It's good. And over the next 15 minutes, it will take you to drink it. You can remove your level of exhaustion. But um, <laughs> Arabet sees you out to the front and uh, loads you into a cab. And uh, you guys can rattle off to wherever you want to rattle off to. However, Arabet, you, uh, Thrasher did ask you to come back once you'd seen them out. I returned to the basement. So by the time you get back to Thrasher's office, he's sitting there with his feet up on his big desk in his big padded leather chair, and he's reading the day's broadsheets. And uh, the headline says, Karalan Embassy coming to Bailey Mina. And uh, as you walk in, he folds the paper up. He's like, ah, hello, Bet." Thrasher, you wanted to see me. I would. Now, you like the Loch Morin, don't you? That's your favorite, as I recall. Yes. Clive, be so good as to get me an Arabet. A couple of glasses of the Loch, Mo the Loch Morin. I almost said the Loch Morag, but I don't like you that much. Arabit smiles. Presently, the goblin comes back with two tumblers of fine Cranjinor whiskey. Made in Scotia, which I suppose makes it scotch. But the old kind, the old recipe, that peaty, um, honey burnt honey taste to the whiskey the goblins make, but it still somehow tastes like Scotia. 
You've had a lot of really interesting booze in the last couple of days, especially since your association with Burley and Tuke has been uh, deepening thanks to Calder's work. We'll get to that in a few minutes, gentle listeners. But until then, join me here with Arabet. So you take a drink of this scotch and, you know, it, it burns the same pleasant way and, Thrasher sits back, he's got his ankles crossed on his desk, and you just drink in companionable silence for about five minutes. Now, this isn't the first time you've done this, but it is the first time in a very long while. And generally, when you have a scotch, it's because Thrasher has something he wants to discuss. Arabet sits quietly and enjoys the scotch while the quiet lasts. And at length, Thrasher sets the forlorn ice cubes and the last dregs of his liquor on the desk. And he sta- he takes his feet off he takes his feet off the desk because you know one's mechanical, right? Actually, takes his foot off of his meta- mechanical foot and then kicks that foot off the desk. Then he stands up and stumps over around the desk, and he goes, come with me, Betts. Come walk with me. Of course, Thrasher. You know, he stomps off along the hallway and back up that cranky old lift, and then, like, back through the other end of the kitchen, up into some attic storage space, and then up onto the roof of Cerulean's Loot. And from here, the view of the harbor is next to none. Like, sure, there's other great views, but here you can see all the towers bristling along either side of the Firth and, you know, the trestles and uh, carriage bridges that, that cross it at heights of hundreds of feet so the ships can get by underneath. And just the tall spires and the, the blinking lights in the sky of the cable cars and the you know, just the, the magical fireworks that erupt off the balconies and patios of the wealthy high above the fog, which binds these lower latitudes. But still, you get a really good view of the harbor. It is at that sweet spot of the evening. Just before the fog rolls in and just after the haze has settled down. And Thrasher takes you upstairs onto the roof. And walks you like right to the right to the northern edge of the building, which you know you look down, and this is one of these Copper Penny Road, especially, is uh, one of these slice neighborhoods, right? Which are really steep. The neighborhoods look like if you slice a cake, with each layer of a cake being a different layer of habitation. There are catwalks and boardwalks and sidewalks and. All of these things that climb the lower levels of the spires. Uh, but after a while, that becomes impractical. And out again on those bridges I mentioned, all the houses and buildings that cling to the sides of those, all over all the waterfall rivers and stuff like that. The city is just bustling, right? And it's your home, Arabet. You've actually never been anywhere else. Now, you've been everywhere in the city from here at Copper Penny Road, all the way north to uh, North Shore and the, and the, far shell and the the touristy areas out there you know you've run all kinds of con games and 
all this and that. You saw the city from end to end when you were an apprentice. And Thrasher was there through all of it. And that was two whiskeys ago. And he just kind of stands there, this old hobgoblin. And he's wearing this coat. It's not a business jacket, really. It's kind of a thick felt cardigan, you know, because the chill's going to come in once the water cools the air off and the fog settles. So he's got his evening jacket on, even though it's presently a little balmy for it. And uh, as you walk over to him, he knows like you didn't show you didn't show up armed because you don't. So he's not worried about that. But he takes a step in from the edge of the building, if you know what I mean. And he fixes his eyes on you. And those lambent goblin eyes in the dark, you know that he sees in the dark well enough to tell what color you're wearing. And since you always only wear black, for him to be able to tell shades in the dark, yeah, goblin eyes, right? So Thrasher turns to you and he claps his hand onto your shoulder and he says, get a good boy, Bats. What have I always told you? You've always told me I'm a good boy and to keep to the boats. Don't get too grand, I've always said. Stay in your lane. You're a boatsman. Stick to what you're good at and you'll be happy for all of your life. So what's happened here, mate? What's changed? Maybe I got tired. His hand is still on your shoulder. And he looks you in the eye and he says... It seems to me that this hand used to cover a lot more of you than it does nowadays, Arabette. And maybe I've been foolish, but I suppose I've always known there would come a day when I would have to take my hand off of you. And so my next question for you is how fucking stupid does your man Hulu think I am? His arrogance is pretty broad. You'd have to know. You'd have to know at least. They wouldn't get anything as slipshod as a last-minute contract past my people. I'm the fucking thrasher, mate. What are you implying? I'm implying that your man Hulu tried to steal my soul with this contract right here. And with that, he pulls a dinner napkin with all kinds of scribblings out of his inside pocket. But what your man failed to notice of remember, or whatever, is that hobgoblins are goblins. And can you tell me where the ultimate genesis of the goblin race happened, Arabet? Don't break your brain, it was the unseelie marches of the dream. And so that makes us fairies. And so, since all contracts between fairies, especially of different courts, require a witness who is a non-fairy, this thing wasn't worth the napkin it was printed on. The thing I gave him was your share of my empire after I'm gone. And that's his and yours now. I wash my hands of you. And I'm taking my hand off of you, Arabet. Do you understand that? I understand. Now, we'll speak of my percentage at greater length once we've had a look at your earnings. 
but I'll give you 60 days for free, which is more than I should, really. I should give you a broken ankle for associating with that person. But if you figure he's worth your time and you figure he's the man you need, ah, well, you've done well enough. I think it's time you flew on your own. Lost Acre is yours, Master Arabic. But as you know, there is no turf in Bailey Mina what is not held by a guild-sponsored organization. And so I'm afraid your days as an independent have come to an end. I see. You'll need to gather your apprentice as he's your only member and present yourselves at the guild hall tomorrow morning at the hour of the Reaper. Do you understand? I understand. We'll see you then, eh? Indeed you shall. You're still mine until then. Don't think of getting too big for your bridges. And for God's sakes, Arabet, think about what this means. Now, fuck all else to say to you, but I need some more scotch. Come in, sit down, shut up, and you can go home when the bottle's finished. And so we leave Thrasher and Arabet to their scotch. The camera focuses on the dark and misty streets of Bailey Mina as a handsome cab clip-clop rattles along the cobblestones toward the barrister's district. Within, we find Nari and Ziva, exhausted from the magic they've just done, but alight from the same phenomenon, both of them clearly busting with things to say, but no idea of where to begin. And so, an uncomfortable silence has fallen between them. The coach rattles along, and at length, Nari breaks the silence. I suppose. Should have brought some cards. Oh, right. I don't know if I have any. As she starts, like, digging through her many pockets and little hidden compartments. I could do some sort of illusory deck, but of course that would mean that I would have to cheat. Yeah, but you, like, always cheat. No matter what. Isn't that why I, well, I try playing cards with you? You need I to mean, learn to cheat. I guess. I mean, since I'm like a criminal now. Isn't that what we are? Like technically. Uh, we're an extra-legal organization. Yeah. Well, okay, so I know, like, we both kind of independently started doing some bad shit. Like, I mean, obviously we don't care, but I mean, I guess... Like, objectively, you would call it bad shit. I mean, I know when you told me you like Soldier Soul or whatever, I treated it like it was a joke. And I kind of know it's like not. 
Yes, I suppose my success has been rather costly. Yeah. So... You know about that, like, academy I was at? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that set me back quite a ways, actually. Yeah. I need to, like, find a way to make a lot of money and, like, pay back for that. Not at all. Was, uh, I was happy to do it. We're family. Uh, except I sort of got kicked out. Kicked out. Uh, like, there was this one chick, and we just like kept getting into it. I kept getting into it. And when everything kind of, you know, blew up, turns out she's like, the daughter of what if like the major donors are like I don't know something important or something so I'm just a weirdo nobody and she's a super rich somebody whatever important so they kicked me out and I might have gotten in trouble for sneaking into like the forbidden part of the library, but I mean, why do you have a forbidden part of the library anyway? That is such bullshit. Yes, that part I can sympathize with. Who, what happened with this girl exactly? Uh, it's like, Okay, so, I mean, you know me, and you know how I've always had this, like, fascination with corpses and, like, dead shit, and I know it's fucking weird, but whatever, I don't care. I think it's super interesting, and I'm always, like, fascinated with, like, stuff, you know, how stuff works, and then I got super interested in figuring out if there was, like, magic around that and it turns out there is but everyone's like oh my god that's super evil you can't know that and i'm like it's fucking magic whatever i'm a wizard i'm gonna learn shit and i want to learn this shit so i just got super into it and there's like a whole bunch of magic around that but i don't know people get all worked up and upset about it so they have all these, like, moral issues and, like, and a bunch of people, like, they don't even know it. They've just grown up. Everyone, they just, you know, grew up being told necromancy is bad. And so they just go, necromancy is bad. And you're like, well, what even is necromancy? They're like, I don't know, but it's bad. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, you're so dumb. But, like, uh... so 
anyway, I might have been, I don't know, practicing on like some rats and maybe the rats found their way into the dorm full of snooty rich bitches. So like, honestly, it was super fucking funny. But they have no sense of humor. Well, Nari is kind of stuck between being furious and just cracking up. (laughs) (laughs) Because that is legitimately hilarious, but that is also like, I did sell my soul to send you to school. Okay, but then when I left, I was like, I was coming back and the super fucking weird thing happened. So the, it got stopped, right? Like we're just like going along and then we get stopped and I get out and they're like, they knew who I was. And I met a couple of bitches who knew who I was and like they like saw me coming because they have like just like crazy magic divination and whatever. And so yeah. They, like, took me in, in the middle of the swamp, and they were like, hey, so we know stuff about necromancy, and we can teach you. And I was like, sweet. So I spent the whole rest of the time that I was supposed to be at school I was there. And I love them. They're amazing. And that's like, I got Pate there too. They helped me like raise him. Did I tell you he's a skeleton? He's totally a skeleton. He's like pure bones. I had to like put him back together. It was crazy. It took me so fucking long. Do you know how big a horse is? Yes, you seem to have acquired an education despite being kicked out of school, at least. Oh, yeah. They taught me, like, everything. Oh, my God. And there was, like, there was never anything about, like, oh, that's, like, forbidden. You know, if I, like, you know, because there's, like, some spells that do some crazy fucking shit. You know, and some of them I would read and I'm like, you know, that's pretty cool. But like, I don't really want to learn that. It's too much work. I don't care. But yeah, Pate was like the first thing I learned how to raise. So, and I had to like do so much magic on him. I did so much work. Oh my God. It was like my big like project. What do they call that when you get like a PhD? 
your thesis? Yeah, that was it. Thesis. He's like my thesis. That is certainly an impressive work. Well, I have to like show you without the, you know, covering. It's got these like really trippy glowy eyes. But I learned like so much and I felt like at first I was so depressed. I was so depressed because like I felt so bad for getting kicked out of school and I felt so bad for like, you know, I know I was going to tell you like how I was going to deal with it or whatever. And then Jamila was like, hey, we found this poor horse like wandering around the swamp can you like help us out? I was like, sure, whatever. And then, I don't know. I was like, when I was helping him out and I, he was like all hungry and shit. So like, you know, we helped him out and I don't know, like it just made me feel a bit better and I got like super attached to him. But yeah, he was like already kind of old. So he just like died after a while. And then I was so upset. And so they were like, okay, this is how we're gonna teach you to like bring, so bring something back. So I had to do like all this work, but they taught me so much and it's amazing. And I can do amazing things, but everybody thinks like all the stuff I can do is super gross and super weird and nobody likes it. And they're like, oh my God, you're so evil. You're like creepy. You're like the bad guy. Like if you read all these stories, they're like, oh, so many stories are like the necromancer is the bad guy. Ooh. So like I can't even like talk about it with anybody. It's so annoying. But I do feel like super bad because you spend all this money and like I don't even have a license or anything. Yes, that is a problem. Especially if you're going to be running a magical business. Yeah, I gotta figure out how I'm gonna do that. I think. Who were these girls? I think they owe us. Oh my god, you're right. I didn't spend money, I spent a soul. They owe me. Okay, we're totally going to get them. I have everything about them written down. Excellent. Yeah, Nari is still just sort of sitting there, sort of stuck between fuming and laughing, because... Kind of, okay, you know, it's like, just such a ludicrous situation for him because he's just like, oh, wait, what? Okay, like. I do feel like super bad, and it's like not what I wanted to happen, and I just, I do feel really bad, and like honestly, this is like the only time I have ever felt bad about like much of anything. So I don't know. I mean, I just. I feel bad that like it went like that for you because that's just not 
fair, you know? Like, when I met the witches, they were like, you know, you were like prophesized to be here. I was like, sweet. So if I was meant to be there, then why did you have to go through all that bullshit? That doesn't seem like, I don't know, that just doesn't make sense to me. I think both of our strings are being pulled. We're being played with by something out there. Ugh. I mean, can't we just like be left alone to do our whatever business? I don't honestly know if I would have preferred that. You remember our lives before. Why are you so, like... I thought you'd be super mad at me and you'd, like, yell and, like, throw things. We'll need to think a way through this for the both of us, I think. Yeah, but, like... If you're mad at me, I totally understand. I wouldn't worry so much about me. Like I said, there's something out there pulling our strings. And I think... I don't think we've been... living up to what they expect from us. Oh, yeah? Well, maybe they should be a little more clear. You know, if you're going to be like some weird, I don't know, what's that word? Omnipotent, like, entity or whatever, maybe like, be clear about you want, what you want. Like, don't go punishing people for like, I didn't tell you what to do, but I'm going to get mad at you anyway. Oh my god. Too many professors were like that. Ugh. Did you know professors don't like it when you correct them? Seriously, like, you'd think they'd want to be right. Yes, I went through my own schooling. Oh yeah, how'd that go? How many people did you murder? I don't think any. Really? Hmm. Well, it was law school, so we mostly just ruined each other's finances and uh, social lives. Oh, that's like the long, slow murder. Yeah. Okay, but like, can I have like a hug? Yes, I suppose. <laughs> okay. And she'll give him like a just a quick hug. But uh, for her, it's very meaningful uh, and and very warm. She seems to be very appreciative of the fact that you're not, like, at least actively and visibly angry at her. No, but you can probably tell that I've shifted from, like, annoyed and trying not to laugh to actually kind of scared. 
The conversation dwindles then, as the carriage rattles along the mist-bound and twisty streets of Bailey Mina by night. It takes Nari a moment to compose his poker face, his court face, the one he wears when he doesn't want anybody to know he's good and shook, and so he rests his chin on his knuckles. While he looks out the window, sees the street roll by through the pools of light cast by the gas powered street lights on this level of the city. Yesterday, he thinks. He might have done yesterday differently if he'd known, but it certainly explained a lot. Ziva, well. Ziva, you have studied, you've got, like, you've gone through all your books. You've got, like, the basic shape of it. And if you had a week to sit down and figure out the resonances and uh, tweak a bunch of, you know, this and that with your you still don't have your laboratory fully together yet right because that parlor is still under construction and the feng shui is all over the place yeah your casting room is all right but you're going to need a full laboratory to get everything ready so before you get into that casting room you go throwing magic around in there right now you might as well just spray paint in the walls you know like well I'm going to have to find a school like this somewhere. Nari, likewise, you, you, you've searched the illegal archive at Starkweather and Fair because surely, like, lots of curses get broken there all the time, right? Um, and yeah, there is a, a fat backlog of curses that were, you know, set and broken by the firm. Um, but most of these are like your firstborn son or screaming madness. That sort of thing. There's nothing as substantial as lycanthropy, right? For that, you're going to need something broad, far-reaching, and more of a panacea sort of thing. So you've either got to set Ziva's laboratory up or, like, Stitch. You've even tried talking to Stitch, and Stitch, can you do it? I have um, bestow curse, but not remove. But not remove. So, like, I mean, yeah, talking to Stitch on the nature on the very nature of curses, right? That's great. Um, all of the research, though, you, uh, all three of you working on it. Who's got the highest investigation score? I got plus five. Plus eight. <laughs> no. All right, so acting as a subject matter expert on curses, Stitch, you uh, really helped Ziva push it on. Uh, I'm going to let you give her the help action in this, and Ziva, you're going to roll investigation with advantage. Woohoo! 24. Okay, so you've got the general, the general shape of it, but there's a bit of math that you really have to check. And uh, the Eldritch Library is only open to licensed wizards. Um, you ask Arabet about maybe getting you a copy after hours, and uh, it's going to take him two days to get into that with everything else. But as a last resort, he can do it, right? The other thing is, um, like, I mean, there's reports that the archive has all kinds of books, like a, like a Library of Congress sort of thing, right? But phew, try to get in there. This city's 800 years old. I want to go there. 
is there a way to go there? Well, it was actually like Nari mentioned something about having to pop off to the archive again sometime soon. And then uh, just one of those random tidbits, you know, like the, uh, like the bit of trivia, like, oh, right. Yeah. The biggest yarn ball in the world is right there. Right. You just say it as a throwaway because it's true sort of deal. Nari mentions, oh, yeah, they've got loads of books at the archive. And you're like, archive, what? Like Nari's been to city plans, but the archive is extensive. Yeah, you got to take me there. Yes, uh, I believe that could be productive. Okay, so like, let's go. All right, I'll grab a little extra gold on the way because I think we'll have to pay to get in. We'll travel by map. We go to a map of Bailey Mina where a red line goes from Rapscallion's Manor down around the mouth of the Firth and up through the Copper Penny Road district. From there, it hooks a left on Fish Street past Bronze Tusks and then climbs a winding hill to the government district. Through those labyrinthine streets, the cab stops and divulges Nari and Ziva outside of the archive building. Once inside, Nari finds his way through the many halls and lifts and staircases until he stands at the desk of Zulgruel Buelb. With that, the color fades back into the scene. And Nari, you're standing there next to the desk. All right, and Ziva's there with me, just uh, chilling out. Yeah, looking around at everything. Trying really hard not to touch it. See if there's a big brass bell on the desk. It really needs to be dinged. It's kind of crying out for it. But apart from this square desk, which seems to block you from the darkness on the other side, there's one light lighting the red carpet and the mahogany desk, which hems in this hall. You just walked out of a hall and into a desk. You can still see the wall where the hall goes from, right? It kind of stretches off, but then there's just dark, right? On either side of this desk. This place is kind of awesome. It's interesting because you and Nari are both half-elven, right? Supposedly. And yet you cannot see through the darkness on the other side of the desk. Uh, it's like magic darkness. Okay, it's this place is officially super cool, and I'm ringing this bell. The bell rings, the light brightens and expands out. And uh, as it washes back like a tide to reveal the long stacks and shelves, it reveals the long, thin, becassic, ink-flowing form of Zul Gruel, who stands there with its humanoid fingers, steeple and goes, mm, Welcome back, warlock. And who is this you have brought me? Now this, oh, this is an interesting person. Who are you, lovely? And with that, it just kind of flows over the desk and into the standing area. 
for some reason, you'd hope this desk would work like a magic circle when you first saw this ink demon, because while it's cool, so are tigers. And tigers are not very cool when they're eating your face. They are pretty mm-hmm. cool when they're just on the side of an inch of glass, though, right? Yeah. No luck. There's no fucking glass. This uh, demon just flowed right over the desk and is standing there, like, tower looming over you and looking at you with a very aroused interest. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, my sister, Ziva. Yeah, hi. Hello, Ziva. My name is Zul Gruber, and you are the most interesting person I've met in a very long time. Well done, Look, What favor would you ask? We're in search of a spell. We've been unable to find it anywhere else in the city. Uh, something that will remove a curse. Which curse? Lycanthropy. Which kind of lycanthropy? The rat kind. If she will come and have tea with me weekly, nothing untoward, I assure you. I am a very proper demon. But you, oh, I must see you again. Come see me weekly for tea. I will tell you secrets. You will spend time with me, and I will give you the spell you need. Uh, yeah. Okay. A moment with my client, please. Even though she's she has, agreed, she has agreed. We have a... And the demon leans in, and you can see yourself reflected in the ink of its surface as its big luminous <laughs> eyes come in just to look right at you. And it's like, oh, yes, we have a compact. I cannot wait to see you. And then there's like a flick of its hand, and... There's ink all over a piece of paper, which is materialized there. And as it falls, you can see it falling into eldritch diagrams and formulas and like the various thomic resonances and lights setting into the threads on the paper. And uh, yeah, there's a scroll there. He goes, I can't wait. Shall we say mm, seven day? Okay. I think at this point, though, her her fascination with what's happening and, and how it works and how this demon is functioning and how it made this spell appear is starting to override her fear. Once that sort of initial lizard brain, uh, uh, you know, adrenaline rush wears off. Uh, she's starting to get, She's starting to get like, wait a minute, this this demon can do all this cool stuff. Mm, I have such secrets to tell you. Until next seven day. I have nothing else for you today, Warlock. You are very gratefully dismissed. And with Zul Grubwelb's voice echoing in our notorious notary's mind, we return our attention to the carriage which rattles along the twisty streets and through the misty night toward the barrister's district. As it passes through the pools of light cast by gas-fired street lamps, we 
peek within where Nari takes advantage of the gloom to hide the emotions which play across his handsome features. Glancing across the cab, he sees his sister looking out the window, chatting about this business or that, commenting on the state of construction on her parlor. Blissfully oblivious to what's at stake for him. He smiles inwardly and makes agreeable noises as they go, but his features are deep in thought. The camera fades out of the cab then. All goes dark, and when the scene returns, we are in the great room at Rapscallion's Manor, where we see Mr. Stitch. Stitch, you and Arabet have come to Rapscallion's Manor this morning. It's probably four or five days after Bet you stood in the hall with Thrasher and had that conversation. Um, you haven't really seen too much of anybody else, but uh, you had to come back here because Stitch needs some herbs from the kitchen here to uh, do his clinic day over at Miss Melinda's. You and he are going to go handle that end of things this morning. So, Stitchy, what is it you need? Oh, <clears throat> I've got a list here. Um, uh, it's in my own handwriting, so I can read it. Um, I'm not a doctor, so you should be able to read it as well. But uh, here, you, you, you know where all this stuff is. It's, it should be fine. Stitch, what's this say right here? It says green thing that has little red spots on it, because I don't know exactly what the plant's called. But you're doing good. Yeah. For a nurse, you're a wonderful Betty. The green thing with red spots? Wasn't give that a lizard? Give me that. Just give it to me. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I'm a little testy today, but no. This this plant here is green with red... Oh, fuck. I forgot. I'm colorblind. Um, th with the spots. The thing with the spots. Right. Okay. What's eating you, Bet? You look a little... Well, I, I'd like to say more peaked than normal, but you people are all peaked to begin with. I, I, I can't imagine what it's like to go around with pinkish skin like you have. So, What's eating you? You've been awfully quiet. It's funny you should ask, Stitch, because Bet has been a little bit off since about three days ago when he got up first thing in the morning and uh, took off to see... Thrasher, first thing in the morning, like before the sun came up. Arabet, we're going to roll back to that day. Now, whether Stitch went with you or not, I can't remember. Can you clarify me? It was Timothée and myself. Yeah, but did Stitch tag along as well, or was it uh, just the two of you? I think it was just the two of us, because I'm not sure we're getting out of it alive. Well, I mean, clearly we did, but you didn't know that at the time, right? That's right. So, after leaving the usual note under your pillow, should you not come back to retrieve it, you figure Stitch would figure that it would be there, or somebody would figure it out and give it to Stitch. You uh, go and collect Timothée from his father's shop, and it just so happens that uh, the hour of the reap 
is right about when his dad gets the bread in the oven. And so Timothée has the rest of the morning at leisure until about, you know, the hour of the bells or so when business opens. You're not sure how long it's going to take, but, uh, you know, the baker's had enough money since you uh, removed his protection fee for him to hire some help, which has really freed up a lot of Timothée's time. Remember when you met Timothée a bit? Yes. What was that? It was a few years ago. He was, he was in trouble. There were a bunch of kids on his tail. And uh, they were calling him Pudgy because, well, he had a few more pounds on him than the rest of them. That's certainly not the case now, is it? He's thin as a whip, despite the fact that he's a baker's son. Discipline does that to you. Yeah, I mean, in the last couple of years have been a, a good time. But, I mean, lately, you see, the kid doesn't have the flexibility he needs. And maybe that means you're teaching him to be too hard. It really came to you when you were doing that crossbow thing with him, when he was uh, shooting your old crossbow before you picked up these bolters. His posture is so rigid and stiff and, you know, hard. You realize that that must have been... Since then, it's been a couple of days, you know, it's been a couple of days since then. There was all that stuff with the with the were rats, and honestly, you didn't sleep hardly at all last night after you saw the Hulus lay into that girl in the room. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, Timothy has actually responded much better to you being his teacher than his master, if you know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean. Well, actually, I'm sure you of all people do. Um, but all the same, that's, you know, since you started teaching him and stopped bossing him, he's been a much better student. And uh, he's actually loosened up. And frankly, bet the kid's got some hands. You know, he can charm locks and pockets, no problem. Like, he's easily as good at that as you were. Maybe better. But um, that single bolter, he got that down right away. The next time you went out plinking cans, you know, the night afterwards, he was using the other hand, and it took you a second to notice it. But he's, a natural, he's naturally ambidextrous. You know, kid is smooth. The kid is fluid. He's a natural, and you hate to admit it, but, uh, I mean, he's, apparently he's a hell of a baker, too, but it's a dangerous life you're bringing him into, but you really can't see where somebody with these skill with this skill set would belong elsewise, you know? Timothy? Yes, sir? Do you have your bolter? 
Of course I do, sir. Excellent. I hadn't noticed. Well, it's this new rig. It's very slick. Thank you very much, sir. Timothy, today is a very serious event. Where are we going? The Guild Hall. You're kidding. And with that, the carriage you're riding in rounds the corner. Now, this is the elbow. And the elbow used to be a fairly posh kind of spot. Now it's Copper Penny Road without all the sex workers. You know, it's a little more family oriented in that you will see families at the restaurants here or not in Copper Penny Row, except maybe at Bronze Tusks. And he's the only family oriented joint in the neighborhood. Location, location, location. Am I right? You but, are right. Yeah. So this place is a little more family oriented. It's the sort of place that you'll find uh, teenagers and uh, young adults hanging out more than really bad people or older adults or even families. But, I mean, there's families here, right? Anyway, the central part of the elbow is the fact that there's a, uh, a big bend in the shoreline here. And uh, at the end of this bend in the shoreline, is an old opera house. Now, the opera house used to just open up in the front. And uh, the pit, the seats, were actually meant to be attended by boat, right? Because everybody knows that sound carries better over the water. And uh, for a while, this place was quite quite the spot. It was uh, the toast of Bailey Mina culture. But that's well before you were ever born. Uh, it's it's heyday 50 years ago, and now it has the air of one of those grand, majestic old theaters, but run down. This, then, is the Grand Guild Hall of the Thieves Guild of Bailey Mina, Local 1. Timothy, when we go in here... You keep your eyes open. Anything. Oh, yes. Anything triggers you. Three taps of your right foot. Oh, yes, sir. Very good. I'll make sure of it. And as you pull up out front, there's a... Well, there's another carriage waiting. This one is better made. It's a... Uh, sorry, and... It's a Hardy and Armstrong. And, uh, you know, like this, uh, one of those good, solid, it's the Subaru of horse-drawn slash steam-powered hybrid coaches. Know what I mean? It's, uh, it's a good one. And uh, brand new. Looks like about a 16 or so. So last couple of years. But, you know, this is Thrasher's. There's only one person who would drive up to the guild hall in one of these. So as you pull up in the cab and get out and pay the cabbie, and he rattles off, um, Thrasher steps out of the cat out of his car, and his driver, you know, gives the horses a little wee crack, and the place and you know, the whole heavy carriage just rattles off. Um, 
Good morning, Betts. He says. Morning, Thasher. Shall we then? Yes, sir. And he leads you through like a side stage door because the main doors are closed and chained and gated and caged. And, uh, you know, most of the main glorious windows in the front of this building have been smashed out and replaced with various materials like, you know, plywood and planks and plastered cloth and everything like that. But once you step inside the Thieves Guild Hall, you see that the whole place, it, it is indeed a big opera hall, uh, but it's been gutted. There are, you know, crossbow ranges up with the stage where, um, you know, apprentices practicing hand-to-hand -hand combat over in one wide area. Up on one mezzanine, there's a Thieves Guild master talking about the finer points of magic locks. Um, right in the center of the lobby is like a ticket desk. And behind this, there sits a tall blue woman. She is humanoid, but she has no visible nose or ears. She has no hair, anything like that. In fact, only the curves of her form suggest that she would be a woman. But uh, when you approach, she blushes a deep purple and uh, blinks her eyes. The thing is, when she blinks, her eyes blink sideways. Very strange. You haven't seen one of these people before. And you've seen lots of people. And with a voice that's friendly, and you can hear it in the back of your brain, she says, yes, welcome, Tarashkul. Welcome, Arabat. Oh, my. To what do we owe this honor? He's being promoted. And as we know, only a mastic in old territory within Bailey Mina, according to guild laws. Yes, this is true. Are you yet a registered apprentice or journeyman of the guild, Master Arabat? I am not. Ah, well then I'm afraid you cannot be promoted until you have achieved the rank of master. However, it seems that we can allow you to challenge the examinations. All of this with her lips moving in what appears to be a murmuring pattern. Yet you hear her clear as day and uh, understand perfectly what she's saying. Then I am here to challenge them. Then you may begin with the apprenticeship paperwork for yourself, and who's this, an apprentice? He is my apprentice, Timote. Then you may register both at once. Over here, and the rest of your day is spent in paperwork, signing you for the guild, which uh, you didn't want to join because of this very fucking reason. There's like next of kin forms. You know, I don't fucking know. Miss Melinda's, you know, like, Thrasher. You, know, you, you switch it up a bit. Uh, Timothy, of course, has all the right answers, but I mean, pensions, savings accounts, and investment certificates, and tax receipts, and what? This is almost legitimate. 
If it weren't for the fact that the job you're doing is stealing shit, this would be a legitimate business. So crooked. Anyway, you're a registered apprentice by the end of the day. You uh, have one week to prepare, and then you will begin your apprenticeship trials. Timothée, on the other hand, is under no such pressure to perform. But when Timothée pulls his head out from under the cupboard with a pot uh, or with a bucket of green-spotted mushrooms and says, um, "Like these here, Mister Stitch." Yeah, oh, that, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, those, those, that's, that's, that's my personal stash. Please put it back gently. Try not to touch it with your bare hands. No, don't. Oh, groovy. Oh, the colors, Mr. Stitch. Oh, the colors. Uh, uh, we, we, I have, I have a salve for that. Go, go have a seat. Uh, go have Oh, I got a good smell of them. They smell like vanilla and burning cows. Oh, that's new. Okay. Get sit down, kid. Uh, Betty, uh, I'm sorry. Um, I'll keep it covered from now on, and I'll hide it even better. I- anyways, uh, your whatever your child, your son. I don't know. What is he to you? My apprentice. Well, like technically, a, like, we're both apprentices now, aren't we, Arabex? I could just call you... Oh, what color is that? What does he mean, Betty? I've never seen that one before. It's blue! No, no, the one in between. Pebble and octomarine. Octopus, I don't know. Shush, I'm talking to the adult here. Oh. What is he talking about? I joined the guild. What? What? I joined the guild. I had no choice. What do you mean you had no choice? Did they put like a knife to your throat or uh, start pulling out your toenails or hang you upside down and, and drip things on you. I got a whole bunch of things in my brain right now. I may have too many. Let's just say stitch. I didn't want to run. That what, what does this mean for, for us? You know, the, does, is this a good thing or is this like, you know, you've been fucked and now we have to just change positions so somewhat so the fucking feels better? I don't know. I'm not sure. The truth is, it could be a good thing. I, I like your optimism and I will share it. Should we? Hey, get your fucking hand out of that bucket. God damn it. But the colors, Mr. Stage. Don't give a shit about your colors. Just wait. To, don't, don't lick your hands, you d- Okay, anyways, besides him. Octamarine! Oh, oh, fucking hell. Uh, and it, what are we going to tell the others? We tell them that we got the lost acre. 
I think maybe you should tell them. Okay, then I tell them we got the lost acre. The lost acre is ours. Wait, mine too? Uh, no. Should be fine. He'll pass out soon. I can smell what you're thinking. Damn it. Gotta remember to put that bucket in my room more often. I'll tell you what, I'll go gather them if you want. Um, I know Maggie's around here somewhere, and it's only a matter of time before the Hulu Kids show. And that Calder guy. Um, uh, well, I can smell him. He's around here. Uh, shall I go get them? Yeah, well, I'm going to have to tell them sometime. Well, Very well. Is, and since it is first thing in the morning, and Caller typically happens by about now, as Timothy sits by the heatless fire on the couch, um, where there is still some of Ben stuck to the coffee table, uh, and puts his feet up, he has a really good conversation with the fire, which drones off into the background. As uh, Calder shows up, with a tray with several covered dishes on it, a bag, a covered mug, and uh kobold to carry the whole mess for him. Good morning, gentlemen. I normally don't see you around at this hour. It is always a pleasure to see you, Mr. Calder. Please come. Have a seat. I see that you brought a lizard with you. What? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. What, um, what is Timothy doing? Is, is he is he talking with the fire? Sideways. I'm not kidding. He said he put it right there. Oh yeah. Calder narrows his eyes and looks at Mr. Stitch. Pay no attention to the child behind the curtain. Continue. You set that olifant down, sir. We're talking. Is he going to be all right? E eventually, he'll throw up and pass out. E everything's fine. I've, I've, I've monitored him properly. <laughs> this is... This is what you think is fine. Don't get judgy to me. He's not my apprentice. I did not put his hands in that bucket, and I certainly didn't tell him to lick his hands afterwards. But now that I am researching this, this is excellent research from a book that I'm writing. Your book. Well, it's a diary, but still, it's a book. Oh, he's got loads of them. If you've ever seen that house, it's full of books. And that all the cats, if you can believe it, none of them have any blimmin' pictures in them. And certainly nothing that smells as delicious as that purple. Indeed, the purple is delicious. Now shut up and talk to the fire. Are you going to smoke all that yourself, sir? Well, I don't mind if I do. Oh, you lot, keep it out. I'm having a civilized conversation. <clears throat> Anyways, Mr. Calder, what did you bring us this morning? Oh, um, 
<clears throat> yes. Uh, uh, I have some uh, some scones and uh, some other uh, nibbles. Uh, I suppose I'll uh, I'll just put these in the kitchen. And then I'll go and do such. Nigel um, starts continuing up the staircase to straight to, to go straight to Magma's room as it as it normally does, and then sees you head to the kitchen instead, and kind of turns around about the third stair up and rattles the uh, rattles the plates a bit. Magma, you've uh, taken to getting up and getting your dailies out of the way before you're woken up by kobolds. So when you hear the rattling on the stairs, you're pretty sure there's an incoming kobold wake up. Oh, well, at the very least, she'll make sure that she's dressed and presentable and kind of sighs deeply and uh, kind of pads over to the door, opens it to look for the kobold and sees he's not there kind of tilts her head slightly and sticks her head out the door, kind of looks down the hallway, doesn't see the kobold, kind of starts to get very confused for a moment. What's interesting is that uh, there's a new pair of boots next to the scones and uh, everything like that and the clotted cream and the tea and the and the rat on a stick, and the, everything else that Magma likes to eat. By the way, neither of you failed to notice um, that the kobold now, you know, gamely pretends he meant to take to the kitchen the whole time. Um, and, you know, <coughs> makes no bone about mentioning that a few times. And uh, as, it, as the kobold walks by Timothy speaking to the fire, uh, the kobold looks over at Timothy, or rather, who Timothy is talking to, and says, Oh, I watch your language. There's ladies in the house. And then, like, goes strolling off into the kitchen to put the stuff away. Hurry up, Nigel. Yes, at once, sir. I'll be right along. Shall I put the boots in the icebox then? No, that will be fine. Just give them here. Very good, sir. And uh, the pair of boots that he produces are uh, look to be like elvish men's 12, which makes them a human woman's nine, you know? Um, and they're rugged enough. They come up to, well, if, say, somebody with the same size feet as Magma was to wear them, these things would uh, come on to about her knees. And they have these shin guards and straps and buckles and all of these other sorts of things and big, thick, spongy soles. And uh, they appear to be incredibly well made. Um, so Nigel the Kobold making no huge deal of it comes walking out with these boots, which are easily like if he was, if it was to set it, if it was to set this, if Nigel were to set the boots on the floor, 
Nigel could rest his chin on the tops of them. That's how tall they are. Cobalts and the boots. So this kobold comes walking out with like, on a human scale, it would look like somebody carrying two mannequin legs. As, uh, you know, Nigel comes out of the kitchen and back around the front and then, uh, well, shall, shall I just put these back in the uh, back in the car then, sir? Uh, no, no, just just put them by the door. Very good. And then uh, Nigel goes stabbing off up the stairs, misunderstanding which door you meant because that's Cobalt's. Um, not, uh, yes, sir. Right away, put them by the door. So there's a big thump outside your door, magma, and then like a second later, there's a big thump outside what you imagine is the bathroom door. And then like the sound of cobalt feet and the cobalt tail dragging down the stairs. She uh, opens the door to her room, kind of peers out to go and look at Nigel. And as a matter of fact, speaking in draconic, says, uh, Nigel, good morning. Where's breakfast? Oh, yes, hello. Yes, hello. Good morning, Miss Magma. I trust you slept well. Uh, I did, of course. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Uh, again, nice where's nice. breakfast? Oh, um, Master Calder had me take it to the kitchen. Um, perhaps he feared you hadn't risen yet, weren't ready. It hasn't seemed to stop him in the past, but um, what can I say? I'm just the help. Oh, well, apparently his gentlemanly sensibilities have now gotten the better of him. Thank you very much, Nigel. I do appreciate that. What, what exactly? What exactly are these, though? Not to quibble, ma'am, but I'm Nigel. And those are, those are the, well, Master Calder brought them originally for you, and for some mysterious reason has asked me to put them by the doors. Um, I must say I'm quite puzzled by it, but... You don't try to outthink the master, do you? Certainly not when you're just a kobold. Anyway, um, anything else? No, thank you, Nigel, for your candor and your assistance. I do appreciate it. Once again, ma'am, it's Nigel. Nigel? Please. Yes, yes, Nigel, now you've got it. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very much. I'll, if you could inform Master Calder that I shall be down shortly. Certainly. I will tell Nigel, Nigel, and Nigel that you said hi, though. Oh, bless your heart. Thank you. Very good. Very good. Um, one second. Right away, sir. Be right there. And uh, off stomps Nigel. She will uh, quickly go bathe, because I'm sure water has been drawn, and um, come back still looking at those boots. Uh, kind of shrug, and I guess pick them up and put them in her room, not entirely sure what to do with them, but not wanting to leave them outside her door. Um, comes down in, you know, like a, a black, you know, linen training gi looks kind of like she's, you know, ready for, ready for whatever the day brings. Um, she's barefoot, of course, while she's in, um, while she's in the house. Um, and she nods to both Stitch and Arabat and Master Calder and goes, Well, darlings, I do notice that you're wandering around my house. Is that Timothy? 
Why is he talking to the fire? I, I believe you'll have to ask Mr. Stitch with regards to Timothy's state. Stitch kind of just waves it off, goes, uh, it has to do with tenderizing. Don't worry about it. Well, he's not doing it very much proper now, is he? Uh, anyways, I will insist, however, if you're going to come into the house, that you do remove your footwear at the door and leave it there, please. I made doubly sure to clean the floor after Ben was dispatched. I'd like to keep it that way. Thank you. Uh, uh, um, humble apologies, Maggie. Uh, it won't happen again. Um, I'll clean it up. How about that? And uh, Stitch starts prestidigitating things as he cleans. We focus on Calder, who rides up once again to the Burley and Took Brewery in what well, it, it's just on the edge of the Alchemist District and the Styes. Over to you, Calder. Well, uh, of course, I've made an appointment, so I uh, disembark from my fine carriage and uh, uh, head off into uh, into the uh, brewery. Uh, where I'll uh, make, uh, make my presence known to that uh, lovely uh, matronly halfling who uh, I think uh, runs the desk there. She smiles when she sees you and uh, bids you to wait in the parlor and then closes the pocket doors. Let's go. Yep, good. All right, so Burley Sr. joins you in the parlor a moment later. Uh, he's carrying a pair of two pint mugs in either hand. Um, he comes to, comes in and he sat that and he sits down. Or sorry, he sits the mugs of frothing beer down on the table between you. And he says, uh, Mr. Collar, a pleasure to see you, sir. Mr. Burley, likewise. And uh, please, thank you so much for agreeing to see me. It turned out I have time for a couple of beers this afternoon. Do you likewise have time for a couple of beers, Mr. Calder? Oh, most certainly I do. Thank you. Now, how many couple of beers would you like? I'll be having two, as you can see. Oh, I, I think that would be quite sufficient. I'll be right back. And with that, he steps off into the adjacent tap room and you can see when the pocket door opens the mickey is on the bar and attentive when burley senior goes walking in those beers are ready and they're the right beers for his da no kidding so a few minutes later burley senior comes back and uh, puts the colder fresher beers in front of you colder I thank you so much. Uh, I, I wouldn't dream of drinking these without first knowing what they are. This is uh, 
Bent River Widow Stout. And uh, the slightly off dark one is uh, Born Old Jack, we call that. It's, uh, it's in honor of the human festivals around here um, on Empire Day. Wonderful. I'll, uh, I'll pick up the first one and make a toast to new friendships. To new friendships, Mr. Calder. And he clinks his mug with you, goes, and takes a long pull of the beer. He goes, now, how can I help you today, sir? Oh, I, I have to know what the beer tastes like. You take a long pull of it, and it's um, pleasant and nutty with a slight rum undertone. It's like drinking a beer out of a glass that had had a rum drink in it previously, but not unpleasantly so. There are hints of the rum, hints of the uh, sweet soda that would be with it. The chill of the glass, like it's had ice in it, not like it's come from a cold box. Um, it, it's... Uh, it's refreshing, honestly. Mr. Burley, you never cease to amaze. You know, I, I've, I'm, I've never heard of a lagermancer, but I'm quite certain there's more to you than the, than the peers. Well, I'm also a uh, stoutermancer as well, and a portermancer. I'm a beeromancer. Uh, actually, sir, I'm just a kid who paid, who paid attention in alchemy class and applied what he learned uh, thanks to the Empire's generous public schooling. Mm, indeed. Well, I'm here to uh, discuss with you the possibility of um, engaging in a joint enterprise. And what sort of joint enterprise did you have in mind, Mr. Carter? Well, it appears uh, through uh, our recent uh, detente that uh, you have a certain contingent amongst your community uh, that are kin uh, in some way uh, but also uh, maybe not so much in other ways as we've resolved the uh, the rat problem so to speak uh, I've come to inquire as to uh, if you have any knowledge of uh, what's what has been happening with the local rat population uh, not of your sort of course I mean the small ones. Well, let me just say that uh, not everyone lives he lives, you know, in the brewery district. Uh, not everyone lives even somewhere as nice as the styes. Some of us have the privilege of living in our own houses. The rest of us have to live in places like Littleton and worse. Yes, well, most unfortunate. I wonder, have you heard of the rising fortunes of my associate, uh, Mr. Arabet? Arabet's a bit of a rumor, isn't he? I mean, he gets arrested and then he breaks himself out. He's uh, Arabet, oh, let's see. They hanged Arabet last month, didn't they? Except that Arabet showed up and shot a few of the constables. Now, there's about 15 Arabet sightings in a month, if you read the broadsheets, my friend. Any one who was actually as criminal and famous 
as this Arabic person isn't much of a criminal, if you know what I'm saying. I can certainly understand how you could come to that conclusion, but I, I assure you he's, um, well, he's a man of great craft. Let's, uh, let us leave it at that. Now, shortly, um, it appears that uh, Mr. Arabet uh, very well might become Master Arabet. And uh, as I'm sure you are aware, that would mean that he would <clears throat> then take on the responsibility of uh, a portion of uh, the good city of Belimina. That is what entitles me to the, well, to the title of this brewery, in fact. And we were wondering if, um, possibly, there was an opportunity to help each other here. And what are you suggesting then? Well, um, I take it uh, from having visited, but also from your uh, commentary, that um, Littleton is a... Uh, not a desirable location uh, for the for the people of your community here in Belimina. Well, certainly not at all. Actually, where we're from in the Riverlands, we don't live this close together ever. That's um, that's the myth. See, like most cities, you'll find a halfling ghetto, but uh, it's not how we live normally. Frankly, Master Caller, we'd rather not live in amongst the orcs, but they're the only ones who don't complain, because at least we keep the cops off, do you know what I mean? Oh, yes, yes. No, your discretion is, uh, is well known and greatly appreciated. What if, as uh, Mr. Erebet becomes Master Erebet, what if his place in Belimina was a welcoming home? For the halflings. Well, unless he's got somewhere to put all of those lads and Littleton to work, I can't put them all in the brewery and let's face it, some of them are only good for breaking and building things, right? They don't have the subtle hand of a crew of brewers. Uh, would any of them would any of them have the talent for, say, catching rats? Well, I think you know the answer to that one. But no, I've got masons and carpenters and steamos and, you know, millwrights and all kinds of other folk, but I I can only employ so many millwrights in my brewery, you know, and only so many steam fitters. There's only so much room for these tradesmen and nobody recognizes their Riverlands tickets here in the Empire. Oh yes, and there's nothing worse than an idle steam fitter, is there? Certainly not. They get up to all kinds of trouble. The only thing worse is a millwright, then he's straight. Well then, I think that there's a unique opportunity for us here. For... I want to be cautious here. If things proceed as we hope and Mr. Arabet becomes Master Arabet. I I think we could have not only a home, but also quite a bit of work uh, for the halflings. 
I'm listening. Oh, one second. Michael, we're going to need a pitcher. So, Magma, the uh, Rusty Axe is just opening up for the day. The hostess, Ragna, has opened the door up. Orcs are showing up for work. You can see them walking down the side alleys and coming in from the neighboring buildings or getting out of cabs. As you uh, show up bright and early, the hostess welcomes you in. She, uh, you know, nods, gives the hostess a smile, um, and says, I'm here to see Mr. Jaharis. Is he about? Oh, yes, for sure. Um, do you want some borscht while you wait? Oh, I suppose I'd be a jerk if I said no, so of course I'll have some borscht. He's early. He'll get you a snake's eyes. And, uh, you know, you go and you kind of sit down at a at a stool where the seats are too big again. And presently, Jairus comes out with a, like, like a salad bowl full of borscht. But not an orc salad bowl, like a typical human salad bowl. So, I mean, you might feasibly eat this in the space of a meal. But he comes out with a little, you know, to him, a little cup of borscht and sets it on the table. It's the size of your average pho bowl. And uh, he's like, hey, you've been gone a couple uh, while. Why, where have you been? I had to deal with some things, Jaharis. I had... A rat problem to look into. Yes, I see. Are you finished now? I think so. And she kind of nods a little bit and, you know, puts her, puts her hands on the table and, you know, like he can see, of course, like the, the knuckles are still scraped from, from the incident with, uh, with saving Daisy, but, she kind of shrugs slightly and says, uh, had to go back to the mines for a little bit, but I think I'm done for the time being. Good. The mines were no place for you. But you're not coming here to tell me you're going back to uh, Arena. I see it. You don't get 20 years on sand without being able to read a person. You see, and you, well, you were always very showy, like a fire, you know? So tell me, Magma, what will you do instead? She kind of smiles a little bit and, uh, you know, leans back very, not so much casually, but comfortably, um, where Jahiris can tell that she is comfortable with him. Um, and says, I think, 
I think my time in the arena is now over. Jaharis, it's... It's not something I think I want to invest my time or energy in for very little in return. I get fame, I get glory, but it's not... It's passing, it's fleeting, it means fuck all in the, la- in the grand scheme of things. And especially considering that the people I thought I could trust within the Ludus ended up basically discarding me. I don't think I want to go back to an enterprise that does not know the value of its people. It depends on who you are, but I agree. There is a reason I make soup now, you see. I want to do something with meaning, Jairus, not just not being Magma Blaze's girlfriend or whatever. I want, I don't want to be as showy, I suppose, but I want, I want what I do to mean something. Do you understand? Of course I do. Look around you. You see these men, these women, these boys and girls that I bring here to my kitchen. They do not think he's Ludis, but he's Ludis of its own kind. Not for fight, for cook, for teach tradecraft, you see. All orcs are told you are big dumb orc. You just carry weight. You pull wagon. You push, you lift. I say, you cook, you make beautiful art. Martial art is still art. Artist can do any sort of art. Do you see? This is why I make soup. There is more to martial art than punching, kicking, chop, and fight. It's still art, Magma. If the glory of the arena is not for you, then it is not for you. Only you know what that is. If I can help make you happy, I will help make you happy. I would not be here if not for your family. And don't mistake. I don't help because I think you, I take from you what with you, everything you have, you earn, you know this. Is all you, is not your uncle, but what your uncle is give me, I repay for your family. So, if I can help you, be happy, Magma. What else can I do? And with that, he stands up and pretty much like touches his, the, the, palm, the heels of his palms uh, over your breastbone while his the ends of his fingers make contact at your spine like he's got both he's got you in both hands by the shoulders and he picks you up and he gives you a big hug she stiffens um she's not expecting it for one and uh for two having this sort of contact is foreign to her so she does stiffen for a moment or two before she kind of looks around for a minute like somebody please tell me what I'm supposed to be doing and then 
you know, she kind of reaches around and, you know, kind of like taps his back or taps his arm or something that she can reach. Like, okay, they're there. Right. But she's still very stiff and he can tell that she's not entirely sure what to do. Yeah, there's that moment where your reflexes just saw an orc grab you by the torso. And uh, like only your head was exposed between his thumbs. You're like, oh, well, fuck. <laughs> How did that happen? Nothing in your life has been gentle or friendly. So what do you do when he sets you down and walks away laughing? Um, She looks very small, as a matter of fact. Like, you know, her, her shoulder, like she curls in almost and is very much... Not so much in a state of, of shock, but more or less in a state of shock. It's she's not had somebody do anything like that to her before. Um, not without wanting anything more than. Um, so, like, I mean, she, her arms kind of very cross very protectively sort of over over her chest. And she's kind of looking around very very sheepishly and very unsure. In time, Gagna comes by and gets the bowl of soup and sees if you're all right. Asks if you want a beer or some liquor. She, uh, you know, shakes her head very quickly um, and slowly kind of forces herself to, to unfurl, uncurl a little bit. Um, and she kind of, you know, stretches and cracks her neck a little bit and says, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not. He he hugged me and I, I keep forgetting that your people are very emotional and I'm not entirely used to it. I'm sorry. Well, you know, Jahiris, old stoic Jahiris. You can't get he you can't get even a smile out of him half the time. But yes, he gives you a hug. Breaks once for you, of course. For me, never. Like once, twice a day, that's all. She heaves a mighty sigh and goes off in a terrible melancholy. Like you said. Orcs are passionate people. She's uh, kind of looking down at her, at her shoot, well, her boots, for the lack of a better term, suddenly <laughs> finding interest in the scuff patterns on the tops of them. Um, and then she kind of looks over at the borscht. Um, remembers of course what everybody has said in regards to if you leave it untouched he's going to get really mad and then quickly <laughs> quickly downs all of it uh and sets the the empty bowl back on the table um kind of wrings her hands a little bit and then and then leaves cuz she's not sure what else what else to do what else to what else to say um that and she kind of feels really um, like she's on the verge of losing control. So she's like, no, I need to leave. I can't do this here. All right. So you get back to your, you, you get back upstairs at, 
on the fourth floor and noticed that uh, Timothy is, ha is hanging punching bags from angled brackets off the wall. She, uh, you know, nods kind of wordlessly to, to Timothy, kind of notes that he's hanging it not so much awkwardly, but incorrectly to the point where one punch from it is going to send it flying. So she kind of shuffles over, adjusts it, shows him very wordlessly how, how to properly hang and tie it. And then kind of, you know, motions for him to, you know, either continue on or whatever. And she takes off her geese so that she's got like the, just basically like the, the sports training bra thing and a pair of loose pants. And, uh, you know, she starts to kind of wrap her, her, her arms and her wrists and stuff like that to be able to, um, begin some training, you know, and begins to kind of lightly, you know, just landing, landing punches, making sure that she's got the form proper and then, you know, starts to add a little bit more power and, and speed to it. Pretty soon it is uncomfortably hot for anybody but you in this room because you are sweating. Timothy's taking tan downstairs. Once she's finished, she'll, uh, you know, quickly sort of rinse off, get dressed again and sort of head back downstairs. She'll nod to Timothy and says, uh, Sorry about that. I, this is part of the reason as to why I usually train alone is because nobody can stand the heat. You crack the big, the big round window in the harbor side of the, the, the in, in the north end of the house anyway, um, and a cool breeze blows in off the firth. Uh, clears out the stuffiness of the air, but uh, the view from outside of the house. When Magma cracks the window, is a great big vent that mist is from a, a hot bathroom when you open the door. Holding the focus on that big round steaming window, the camera draws away and the window dwindles from view. By and by, the camera finds a level. Bailey Mina's famous skyline, bristling with towers and backed by mountainous peaks. The glittering firth spread out all along. Behind this, the sky grows dim and then dark in time-lapse. The stars come out, and when the camera returns its focus, it returns it to the district of Queensbridge, in particular, Maxstone Avenue, and the shop called Calder's Curiosities. On the main floor, all of the lights stream out into the gathering gloom and rising mist as the small garden bustles with the evidence of cobalt activity. It seems there's been a bit of trouble at the shop, but we're a little late to catch that. We'll discuss it at another time, but for now... Well, Calder, it's been a long day, and that bit didn't make it any more pleasant, did it? Like, I mean, getting home to that sort of thing. But let's not dwell. As the Nigels drag out a heavy sack, and uh, you can hear the sound of footsteps fleeing on the cobbles down the street. Um, Nigel says something in the cobalt dialect, um, that slang they use. To the other two, they nod, and those Nigels keep dragging the sack. The... Uh, Chief Nigel, at least the chief of the moment, the one that you've been talking to recently, looks at you and goes, <clears throat> um, will there be anything else, sir? 
Yes, Nigel, I suppose given this spot of trouble, I shall have to go downstairs. Shall we lay out your pyjamas for you, sir? Not tonight. I shan't be sleeping. Very good, sir. One moment, please. Oi, you lot. Snap to. You've got jobs to do. Get at them. Terribly sorry, Master. Um, anything else? That'll be all. Um, please ensure I'm not disturbed for the remainder of the evening. Perish the thought, sir. We know how you love your privacy. Uh, so we know how you love your privacy. We'll um, we'll excuse ourselves for the evening then after we've set you up, shall we? Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Nigel. Just so. Certainly, sir. It shall be done. Um, would you like us to draw you a bath while you're waiting? No, no, Nigel. You've done. You've done enough this evening. Thank you. Very good. I'll see it done at once. And uh, with that, Nigel gives you a brief nod and uh, slithers off into the betweens of the shop like the kobolds do all of the time. Uh, there's a slight bump from under the table that he he kind of walks under, a little bit of squabbling, and then like a few minutes later, or like just almost instantly, a couple other kobolds like shoot out and uh, from under the table and go about their business, having been roundly chastised with a club in the back of the head. But uh, you see Nigel walk out from the other side of the table and uh, disappear through the hatch that you have built into the cabinet, whereupon sits your collection of fine Amruni artifacts. So, well, um, once they've uh, so once they've uh, headed off, and I'm alone, I'll uh, I'll turn off. I'll extinguish the lights uh, throughout uh, the curio shop, uh, and uh, of course, the the darkness isn't any sort of a problem for me. And then I head off uh, to the back room and head downstairs. Um, but when I say downstairs uh, today, I don't even mean the curio lab where uh, where we've been before. I get down there and. Uh, I cast a, a small spell, one of my cantrips, and that large table, the work table, where uh, we first met with Arabat and everyone else, the whole thing just slides aside to reveal a set of stairs. And down I go. Interestingly, um, shedding your clothing with your progress by the time you've reached the bottom of the stairs your tie is off your jacket is uh you hang your jacket on a clothes tree for the purpose and uh you know pop the buttons on your vest um the camera turns to your back as it uh as you take your shirt off and interestingly on your scapula your very sharp half elven scapula there are noticeable bulges as of atypical muscle for a half-elf's back, but whatever. Um, the camera holds at this elevation as you drop your trousers, and then, as it seems kind of opposite, there is the clinking of a belt, and the 
camera shifts to follow this belt as it's uh, set onto the valet that's waiting to take your clothes. Um, it doesn't focus back on you again, obviously, for decency's sake, um, until there is a snap as of a towel being taken off of a, being taken off of a, a rack. And, uh, you know, we see the towel kind of flicker off camera and the sound of heavy footsteps. And now um, a mild dragging and a bump is, you know, just like not the sort of noises you would expect an unclad man to make. Um, you walk along and the, the lights are off, but there are a few uh, phosphorescent items on these shelves down here in the sub-basement. Um, by the time you turn the final corner, you've, uh, you feel much better. It's, it's always a little unsettling for your spine to lengthen like that. And uh, while it looks like your shoulders narrow, they don't. Your chest just bows out. Um, finally, you can bend your knees the right way and unfold your feet to say nothing of having your tail out. It throws your balance for a few seconds every time you put the belt on. But, uh, you know, it's a small price to pay. You know, it, there's even a tension in your jaw like where you can just finally open your mouth to an appropriate width. And so you do that. It looks almost comical uh, if anybody could see it in the dark, which you can, but unfortunately none of our viewers have your dark vision. As you turn a corner at the edges, at the end of some shelves, uh, the Chief Nigel has prepared a, it's almost like, a, it's a wide cushion, a round cushion, such as you'd find in a souk. And, uh, almost the size of a dog bed. So it's out in the center of a carpet, which is obviously hand-woven, very expensive. This chamber has one thing in it, and that one thing is a box of carved black jade. As I walk in and my can unclench my jaw and I can speak properly, I say, <laughs> Finally, Ugh, it makes my jaw ache. Well, to say nothing of having a throat that's the proper length to speak all of the syllables you need to. So you give your long neck a crick, and uh, there the box has been set on a small altar-like pedestal uh, before the cushion. I, uh, I kneel down on the cushion, and I raise my hand, and then I stop in a moment of consideration. This is not a small thing. And once I do this, there's no going back. But I don't see any other option at this point. And so I lean forward with two hands, one on each side, and I raise the lid of the black jade chest. There is a moment as the lifting of the box changes the pressure around it, and the curling smoke of incense lit properly by the Nigel has, uh, it, it kind of curls into the box and sort of seems to drop into the box for whatever reason. By the time the lid is fully out, you can see that, yes, the smoke is filling the box. 
Go ahead. I take a deep breath and I say, Salamat Malamgong. Good evening, Grandfather. Good evening, says a voice out of nowhere. And then the darkness into which the smoke was draining just it just kind of sinks into the deep purple velvet lining of this box and revealed is a kukri style blade um probably 14 inches long with the typical built ha- typical bent blade but a handle built for a hand that's larger than human the skin which the sheath of this is made is a glossy scaly substance which looks as though it came from a sizable very dark colored dragon it has brass fittings on the handle and the scabbard itself and as you lift the weapon out of the box with the proper veneration to remove the sheath you hear a sound like a vast exhale hello i believe the time for hiding is over for myself and for you as well. Excellent news, says this voice. And as the tones echo through the ancestral chamber, smoke rises out of the box again to form the face of an old dragon with like long whiskers off his, off the front of his muzzle. And, you know, like a, a proper established dragon's beard with like the horns and the, and, and like the, all of the scales and the, the long muzzle, the true full beauty of the adult draconic form. And he says, what has changed for you, grandson? I did not think it would ever happen, but I believe I have found, well, a new clan, or at least one until I return home. Family in the moment often becomes the real thing. Are you sure they're worth your time and effort? I don't know if one can ever be certain of such a thing. But I've seen them be brave and be loyal. And they are strong. Then they are exactly the sort you need to avenge yourself. Without a doubt, though, now is the season of action. And with that action, I will need you, Grandfather. Then we will watch your companions and see where this goes. I've hidden too long anyway. It is time that the world was made familiar with Valtagash, the Vigilant. I'll follow you. But no more hiding. I, uh, I bow deeply. And I say, Thank you so very much. And yes, no more hiding. Excellent. And the scene fades out to Calder sitting the knife on his knee as he curls up in his true glossy black draconic form to have a consultation 
with his ancient grandfather. Well, there's a bit of a twisty episode for you, huh? Drop us a line and let us know what you thought. There'll be info coming up later in the credits. The first thing I want to mention as we wrap this episode is that all the music used in Runelanders is used under Creative Commons licensing, under licensing through SoCan, or it's in the public domain. You can check our credentials out on our website at runewise.games. Now, for song lists, this week's episode opens with the instrumental version of Amy Winehouse's You Know I'm No Good, and it finishes with Ramshackle Metropolis by Emperor Norton's Stationary Traveling Band. In between those songs, you're going to hear Things Ain't Like They Used To Be by The Black Keys, I Lied by Matadors, Hello My Treacherous Friends by OK Go, Better Is One by The Heavy, The Other Side of Rainbow by Gogo Bordello, and Through the Flesh by Onra. Hope you enjoyed. What did you guys think of that episode? Any comments? I'm just trying to think of a like a witty quip or quote or something, and I'm just I am completely drawing a blank. Like, I mean, let's face it, there were a lot of big reveals this episode. It's almost like you know the veil has been lifted for pretty much everybody this episode. You're like, holy cow, that was a lot of reveals in a very short amount of time. Well, the episode previous was like super fast paced and everybody was running around shooting halflings because everybody likes halflings in a barrel. Uh, this episode has just been just blowing my mind, the amount of stuff that suddenly came out all at once and uh, how we were reacting to it was just... Uh, and we still and we still have one more episode this season, right? Uh, I, I think that episode ten is absolutely going to blow their minds with spoilers, right? No spoilers. But I need my spoilers, damn it! I need them. Well, you already know what happened. You're spoiled all the hell. It's coming up next week. They got to stay tuned. We can't give them all of the good stuff at once. That's why they make you boss, Adam. <laughs> Actually, as uh, as is a widely known fact, I hired myself for this job. So in this case, I am them. So I guess I really can't fault what they say, right? Nor can you fire yourself. I can, and I have. <laughs> but that's another story. Anyway, yeah, huge amount of twists this episode. Lots of reveals. Everybody's... Uh, Everything is changing for our hooligan heroes. And like I said, there's still one episode left. Let us know what you think. Um, you can find us as once again on Twitter at CastTheRunes at Gmail. Uh, runelanders at gmail.com. And on Facebook, just look us up. We're Runelanders. Uh, again, tell your friends. You can find us just about anywhere that uh, podcasts are available. And as usual, our dramatis personae are... Nari, Lou, and like all of his other whatevers are played by Eric Martin. Ziva, Hulu is like totally the best, is played by Shireen or like at Fishmonger and she has a site and it's like Linktree slash Madfishmonger. Arabat, just like 
kind of cute, is played by Christopher Stokovaz. Mr. Stitch is played by the mighty Fenris. He's like super mighty. Magma is played by Shauna Mulligan. She's like adorable. Calder is played by Sean Yo. He's like awesome. And the friggin' dragon man. Who saw that coming, right? <laughs> oh my god, nobody. Alright. Well, that's that for this episode. Stick around, there may be something after the credits. Then again, maybe there isn't. But until next, take good care. Dragon. Is anybody in this group who they say they are?